episode 422 of the Cyber Law Podcast, brought to you commercial-free by Steptoe and Johnson. We're lawyers talking technology, security, privacy, and government, and the views we're about to express do not reflect those of our institutions, our clients, our customers, our friends, our family, not even our pets. Joining me for News Roundup today are Dave Attell, cybersecurity specialist and policy partner at Cordyceps Systems. Maury Schenk, London-based lawyer and technologist. Nick Weaver, researcher at the International Computer Science Institute in Berkeley and the chief mad scientist at Scary Technologies. That's spelled S-K-E-R-R-Y, just to make clear that it's not scary technologies, although Knowing Nick, it probably is. What? Flying kill bots? Uh, no, it's just a coincidence. <laughs> exactly. And I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with NSA and DHS, and the host of today's program. So lots of news. So we really had to be selective about what we covered. But what happened Friday night is going to be the biggest news for a while. The Court of Appeals for the for Texas and the Fifth Circuit issued a hundred page, roughly a set of opinions about Texas's social media law. The main opinion was written by Judge Oldham, Andrew Oldham. And it was, I have to say, they upheld the uh, the law against a challenge in a remarkably persuasive and well-written opinion, which of course is going to be dismissed anyway by all the people who are in charge of what we're supposed to believe. But it was a surprisingly good opinion. I was, I'm of course, more inclined to be persuaded than most, but he really did a excellent job of explaining in very technocratic terms and ways that good lawyers will appreciate why the, the the law should not be struck down. The most important thing probably, and I've, I've thought this from the beginning, is this is a law that has no teeth other than the possibility of an injunction. And those lawsuits would be generally built, brought by the attorney general of Texas. So to strike it down on the grounds that there's no possible way it could ever be interpreted in a fashion that is constitutional is a very, very aggressive thing to do and not consistent with the law that has evolved over the last 50 years with respect to how you treat statutes and the possibility of impinging on speech. He did a good job with that. He had some very interesting, he made the point that we generally use overbreadth doctrine because we're afraid that if we leave the law on the books, it will discourage people from speaking. And as he says, really, all you're going to discourage is you're going to discourage social media from censoring, which is not exactly what the First Amendment is designed to, to protect and not something we should develop new doctrines to ensure. There's lots of argument about this. Michael Masnick has what is even for him a little unhinged rant. I mean, he's always that way and that's what makes him entertaining. But his criticism of this depends on him smuggling all of his prejudices about how the First Amendment ought to be interpreted in this context into his opinion piece and then saying, well, anybody who disagrees with me is just too stupid to understand the law. So I didn't, I was not particularly persuaded by him. And I thought, I think you really need to read the opinion to get a feel for why it is as persuasive as it is. I thought the most interesting thing, I had no idea that this was true. Everyone says, oh, this common carrier thing, it's complete BS. No, how could you possibly impose a common carrier obligation on these big companies who are carrying this speech? And it, it would be an excuse to prevent them from exercising their own First Amendment rights to decide what they're going to carry. Turns out that we did this between 1840 and 1890 to Western Union. And Western Union had been doing exactly what we, most of us who don't like social media censorship, were afraid of. They entered into a deal with Associated Press to carry, and maybe there was some back scratching, maybe some financial co-ownership, but Associated Press was Western Union's favorite news outlet. And 
Associated Press wouldn't carry stories that were critical of Western Union, and Western Union would not let reporters who were competing with Associated Press have easy access to sending telegrams. They didn't let people send telegrams about strike-related messages. They were doing exactly what people suspect social media is doing now, which is working out their social views and their financial interests by suppressing the speech of people who needed to use the wires. And the response in the 18th century was to say, of the 19th century, was to say, we're going to call you a common carrier and you're going to have to serve everybody on the same terms. So it is not at all crazy to impose social, these common carrier obligations on, on social media. Those are just a few things. I all that said, I am not convinced that this is going to result in the Texas law ultimately being upheld. There's a Florida had a law that was similar in some respects, probably not as well framed, that was struck down by the Court of Appeals for the 11th Circuit, I think. And uh, that ruling is pending, as will this one before the Supreme Court. This is clearly going to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court has voted five to four that it wanted the the injunction that was issued by the lower court and which Oldham's opinion reverses, it wanted that to stay in effect while the case was being argued, which is usually a hint that it, it agreed with the court below that issued the injunction. So given all that, plus Kavanaugh has expressed, Justice Kavanaugh has expressed views that are kind of closer to the the corporate free speech argument that is being made by social media here. So for all those reasons, it's going to be a close call. But I thought Oldham did a really very good job of writing an opinion that shows that it will not be hard for the Supreme Court if it decide if it can get five or six votes to write an opinion saying we're going to let this stand and see what happens. So it will be a, a very, you know, this will be the, the heavyweight match of next term in the Supreme Court. And Oldham has done a done it's all a favor of basically writing the brief that is in opposition to all of the social media briefs that are going to be filed so that it'll be a well a well briefed dispute. On so the other hand, I'm looking yep. forward to uh, my Texas friends really trolling Orange Moloch on Truth Social because sauce for the goose, sauce for the gander. I have no idea who tro- Orange Moloch is. Oh, you're talking about like, Trump. <laughs> okay. Yes, i quite right. There will be a variety of efforts to show that there's a problem here, but I'm just not sure if... Well, actually, I'm not sure that Truth Social could possibly qualify for being a platform that's subject to this regulation. So they probably are not going to face any risk of liability. And this is Facebook and TikTok, maybe, and Twitter. So it will be interesting to see. There's no stay. I'm sure that there's a stay being pursued, but it's possible that we'll actually see the Texas AG start taking action under this while he waits for the Supreme Court to uh, to decide whether they're going to take the case, which I think is a foregone conclusion. I haven't read the decision, but is, isn't this tantamount to just saying that Twitter and Facebook and TikTok are a public forum? And then you've got to draw the line. Sort of it, it, there, there is an element of that. There's an element of saying you have an obligation not to, to squelch speech because you have power over speech in a way that it affects the Constitution. But the Oldham opinion does not try to make new doctrine like that. The only new doctrine that he comes close to making is he says, I don't think editorial discretion is a separate right. He makes the point, which is a good one. He said, you know, you're telling me that this is just like putting out a newspaper and deciding which letters to the editor you're going to publish. But those decisions are all made in advance because you kind of have to, because you don't have enough space. And you're not doing any of that if you're Facebook or Twitter. You're basically saying to everybody, anything goes, put it all up. And then later, maybe we'll decide whether to censor you. That's not really editorial discretion in the same sense that people who have limited space exercise it. And he says, and if you're going to, when you want to say that, when you say, I need a right to editorial discretion, you really need to say, I have a right to First Amendment expression that overrides all of the free expression rights of 
everybody who's using this this forum who isn't me. And so giving money to a PAC is speech, but editorial discretion. Well, you know, it's, it, it is interesting. Yeah, for sure, there's an inconsistency there between the the conservative view 10 years ago about corporate donations and their a view about corporate content moderation. I think there are a fair number of people on the right who would give up Citizens United pretty cheerfully, but there's a lot of people on the left who wouldn't let them because getting dark money has turned out to be a bonanza for the left more than for the right. Okay. So the other big story is Uber's been hacked again. Dave, I don't know what to say about it. It, it looks as though this was a kid, right? It looks like a lot of things, but yes, somewhere in the hierarchy you know, where at the very bottom is sort of hacktivists, at the very, in the middle is sort of nation states, and at the very top is like bored 18-year-olds. Apex predators, for sure. The apex predator of the internet. And uh, the annoyingly persistent teenager is one hell of a threat. It is. I have one, and I agree with that thesis. So I will say that it's not just Uber, and it's now also Take-Two, Interactive, which is a massive, massive company that sells Grand Theft Auto. And Grand Theft Auto, if you're even remotely connected to video games, is a blockbuster that makes yep. the Avengers look like small cookies. So, and in fact, has made tons more money than the Avengers, which I think is a mark of its importance in society. But they also got desperately hacked, and now the source code is floating around. The hacker is talking on 4chan, which, as far as I can tell, is just a bunch of people who want to be real comfortable saying the N-word in public. And so <laughs> it's very interesting to watch what the hacker did and what they claim to have done, at least, which is they social engineer one employee within these big companies. They bypass multi-factor authentication in some cases, just by spamming that one employee with a request. So the employee eventually gets annoyed and hits OK. And then they do basic internal surveys. They found, in the case of Uber, a script, an internal script sitting in a share that happened to have the essentially the keys to the kingdom in it, which from experience, I can say, since I ran a penetration testing company for a while, is an extremely common finding. The idea that like some random share has all of your... like highest level passwords is something that happens at every company that we've <laughs> did a penetration test to. So I don't want I don't want to blame Uber too much for this. And then from that, because of the way the cloud works, they had access to AWS, they had access to their bug bounty system, which if you can imagine is kind of a big deal. They had access to Slack, they had access to everything, right? So apparently they were being quite a nuisance internally and they were, you know, posting things on the hacker one forum as the company. The company Uber has released, you know, their report saying no sensitive customer data was accessed. I think if there was no sensitive customer data accessed, that's, I, I'm not going to call it a stroke of luck, but it's purely because the hacker didn't feel like it, if that right. makes any sense. Yeah. And it's your basic CISO disaster. And it really rings through to one of our other stories, which is the level of security at even the biggest companies can often be catastrophically bad. Like, even if they follow all the regulations and they kind of do their best, once they've grown to a certain size, it's very hard for them to say that an event like this with a bored teenager isn't going to make their stock plummet on any given Tuesday, if that makes any yep. sense. So, uh, yep. uh, uh, Nick, anything to add to that? There's also the real question, how does Uber know that sensitive customer data was not accessed? Maybe they could give this teenager $100,000 to tell them he didn't access it. <laughs> That's always a possibility, except that I don't think it'll work this time because nobody is willing to sign the check anymore. Yeah. And, yes, and and fact, it, is, it is ironic that a much smaller, actually, breach has produced the criminal case that Dara Khosrowshaw, he uh, was testifying on right in the middle of this disaster. Yeah, it's an interesting chain of events. I believe the last podcast, you had an entire segment on the previous events, yep. and it sort of just flows through straight to this one. I think it's important not to blame the victim here, obviously, but... Nonetheless, it's sort of a sign of the times. And for long-term listeners, you may remember the LulzSec event from, yeah. I don't know, five, ten years ago? It's, it's been a while now. 
I don't want to date myself. But LulzSec was also a collection of sort of random hackers, a lot of them in international companies or international countries who felt like they were out of reach of American law enforcement, which they were definitely not. Let's put it that way. And I think this person's going to discover that to their chagrin as well. The, the arm of American law is, is fairly long. There's a, but there's a bunch of teenagers out there who will ruin their whole lives for a weekend. And that's a sad fact of how security works. And the other thing is that this is a good reminder of why you do want security keys, that so much snake oil has been pushed in the wake of this, but security keys do make a difference because it stops the initial vector of spamming the user with 2FA requests until they click accept because they think their duo is going crazy, not because somebody is pinging on the duo and stuff like that. So use security keys. Yeah. Okay. And that's not a that, that's not going to solve the problem. No, we're, it's we're not going to solve solving. the problem, especially because it doesn't apply to these internal credentials that were stolen in the script because you can't right. 2FA your code, but it does really reduce a lot of the initial penetration off as well as I'll it's just, just add easy to, that, to use. That, that obviously one of the problems a lot of companies have is that they don't have classifications and clearances applied to their data. So this script, if you were in the government, you would market TS, right? And it would be locked onto TS systems and it would not float magically onto some public share or some internal company share, right? So that is like having data classification internally is hugely onerous. You don't see corporate entities doing it typically, no. but it's definitely, that is the sort of solution to some of these other issues. But, and my guess is even in companies that do it, they don't recognize all the things that ought to be treated as top secret. Agree. Even the government they're, they're, doesn't do that, right? So <laughs> I, I don't want to like hold them to a standard. And even when they do, they end impossible. up in Mar-a-Lago. <laughs> yeah. That's in a separate hilarity. Closets. But certainly, like, I think you will start seeing people try to invest a little bit more in protecting what their internal data flows are, uh, yeah. including Uber. Yeah. Although I want to put a pin in that because the Uber whistleblower suggests that, boy, that is for sure not happening at Twitter. But before I do that, I want to ask Maury, because uh, the EU released a decision, a court decision, upholding a, a real financial setback for Google. I thought the case isn't over, but the court basically said that Google, the finding Google liable for telling people that if they wanted to use Android, they also needed to include, if they wanted all of the features that they needed to include, Google search, Google's anti-fragmentation rules, uh, or all being treated as anti-competitive, as, as abuse of a monopoly position. Uh, Maury, I have to say, I was really torn about this because I, I understand the theory, and it's not a crazy theory that there's monopolization going on here. At the same time, most of the things that Google is doing make a lot of actual sense. Makes sense in terms of you, what? You, being would, good for you, the users? Or be being good for good users, for yeah. yeah. You don't want fragmentation of, of Android, and they're competing with Apple, which is never going to allow the slightest bit of fragmentation. And people like Apple better, in fact, for ease of use. And Google's anti-fragmentation effort was trying to bring some of the smooth functioning of Apple to all of the Google Android ecosystem. Well, I, I agree with you that the anti-fragmentation policies could be supported, although the European General Court, which is the lower chamber of the European Court of Justice, did uphold in whole the commission's decision on that. I think it's less obvious the competitive benefits of the other two arms of what the commission found, which is forcing the Google search app in Chrome to be installed if you wanted access to the Google Play Store and making payments to OEM as a condition for, favor for pre-installing Google search. Those seem more to me like potential abuse of market power. And Google had made some adjustments already in the wake of this finding and before the court decision. But this is a pretty good result. This is one of three big enforcement actions by Margrethe Vestager's DG competition against Google. Google appealed all of them. This is the second one they've lost. The third one's pending. Margrethe Vestager is 
now investigating digital advertising by Google and anti-competitive conduct. That's kind of the big one. You know, all the search is big, but digital advertising is where the money comes from. And they're, of course, linked together. So I think this is suggesting that this is kind of business as usual for Google and the EU now. They're going to... You mean losing. Got, <laughs> well, <laughs> I don't know whether... I mean, they won't lose if uh, the commission goes completely off the reservation and they win some things, but just facing really serious competition control and having the European courts on their side. You know, you said it's not the end. They can appeal this to the main chamber, the Court of Justice, but that's pretty unlikely that they would win just on points of law. Yeah, I think, and this is going to be a big deal for for Google, I think, and maybe a big deal for Android. It could have real impact on how Android phones function. And I do agree with you that when they, once they go after search, which is the source of the data and the ad tech, times are going to be hard for Google. Yeah, it's an interesting point about Android. I mean, you spin back to the time of this decision or a few years before, and Android seemed to be in the ascendant as the open source alternative. I noticed that iOS is now over 50% of the US market. Android still leads in the European market, but it's not. I think iOS is coming on strong here, and it's not an easy picture for Google. I think that's right. I mean, the nice thing from Google's point of view is that Apple's probably priced itself out of half the world market, but that's not a world market that produces large amounts of advertising revenue. So they're being squeezed into a relatively low rent district. Yeah, while Apple is building their ad business. And then the irony is that there, some of this is being done precisely because Google, in a fit of sort of internet hippiedom, said, why don't we make Android open source so other people can develop their own versions of it? And then they started trimming that back. But Apple said, are you kidding? We want total control. And they are actually doing better on antitrust grounds than Google is, despite the fact that Google really was much more open to competition than Apple ever was. Well, it's the open source nature of Android is mostly as a consequence of Google not actually wanting to write an operating system. They basically took Linux, which is all GPL, and there's serious restrictions on GPL code. It's deliberately viral. And so the core of Android had to be open source just simply because Google didn't want to write it. Yeah. But look, they were also part of that culture when they started Android. And it was much more of a a flyer than it looks like today. And it was a little bit an effort to say, we can do this in a a less evil way. I'm not going to say it worked out that way. But it is still ironic that Apple, which never had a moment of consideration of the possibility of allowing competition is being treated much better by the EU than than Google. All right, let's go back to the Twitter whistleblower. We didn't learn a lot from his testimony that we didn't already know other than the fact that there was a it was a Chinese spy that he believed was the, the one that the FBI had told Twitter was working inside their their company and the just evocative story of him saying to somebody at Twitter, we've got to get rid of, you know, we can't hire these people. They're going to be spies and having somebody say, well, we already have one. So what's another? We can, why don't we just keep growing the office? We're already pregnant, which I I thought was an insouciance about intrusion of the Communist Party into Twitter that ought to make some lessons, offer some lessons to us. But the question of how bad their security is, Dave, it sure sounded like half the company had access to pretty much everything without any ability to audit what they accessed. And I think that's the, I mean, you get a few things out of the testimony that I think are new, right? So just to back up a little bit, we'll name some names here. Peter Mudge Zatko, who in 1988, testified as part of the Loft Hacker Group to Congress, last week testified to the Senate Judiciary Committee about his much shorter as, hair. <laughs> much shorter hair. I think he looked good. He had a nice suit. And, and apparently he got a, a $7 million payout from Twitter as part of his time. So he was a high-level security executive at Twitter. And I want to point out he was not the CISO. There was actually someone under him 
who was the CISO. So, you know, there's a lot there's a lot about this story that is misreported on. And I think that's one of the things. I mean, like Twitter, everything is happening very fast and not necessarily very accurately. Right? So it sort of mirrors the social network in that way, <laughs> which I found really fun. So what did you think people got wrong in writing these stories? Okay. So one of the things that people got wrong was they posited, and I think in a pretty insulting way, that Peter Zatko did this in order to curry Elon Musk's favor. Because <laughs> as you know, the other big news of the day is with Twitter is Elon Musk wanting to back out of his Twitter deal. Right. So people are saying, well, he's doing this because he wants to, you know, get in with Elon Musk. And I think that that really underestimates first Peter Zatko, but also the timeline, right? Because the timeline of when he started this action is probably before Elon Musk even considered purchasing right. Twitter. So Although some of the stuff felt as though it was added in to, to tie more directly with Elon's It could be that it got a little extra flavor, but I don't think that much of it has changed in the past year. You know what I'm saying? Like, So that was one of the things that I thought was really interesting. There's also been – it was a really interesting story that came out, which is that everyone who's ever worked with Peter Zatko has been receiving these weird requests like on LinkedIn. I got one myself where people are basically trying to pay for dirt on Peter Zatko. Yeah. And this can only – I don't want to accuse Twitter of doing anything bad, but I don't know where else this would come from. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Like, it's been, it's very fishy. So actually, I can th- I can think of where it could come from. Okay. If you had a big bet on the merger on on the sale, it, you might want to take down anybody who casts doubt on whether the deal should go through. And I actually read that story carefully because I know a lot of the companies that are. making those calls. And they are mostly companies. I've actually, I did a little of this for a while and then just stopped, but they will call up people who they think are experts on, especially things like CFIUS or other stuff that will affect a merger. And they will say, we'll give you $1,000 an hour to just give us your best estimate of what's going on here. So that is a regular business model of many of the companies that did that. And so it doesn't mean they aren't doing more in this case, but it's perfectly possible that this is just somebody who wants to know what are the motivations here? Where is Mudge going to go with this? How is it going to affect the deal? And so I thought it was a little bit overhyped to suggest that they're digging dirt. I was prepared to believe they were because this is Silicon Valley, but I didn't see a smoking gun in that story. And you're probably 100% right. You know, if I had taken the money, I might have a better picture of what exactly they were asking about. And so I kind of regret not taking the money at this point. Well, um, what you do is you take the money and BCC Ronan Farrow. Yeah, that, they, sounds they, like, they, that sounds like they, a lot they, of work. So. There, there, and there may be an NDA involved. <laughs> yes. And I think there's some more context here, obviously, right? Like a few months ago, Twitter actually paid $150 million in a settlement with the Federal Trade Commission for violating a very – like simple privacy agreement where you don't use the phone number that people give you to secure their accounts for tracking them and advertising to them. I think that's a very simple thing to not do. And apparently it was too much for the Twitter team to figure out. And the picture that you get of Twitter internals, there's a couple different pictures. One is of a company that's a little bit over its head. And because of that, has had to make some decisions that were not necessarily in the public's best interests, certainly not in their customers' best interests. And definitely a lot of senators were claiming it was a national security risk. And some of that, you could see if you were Twitter and you needed $100 million from the Chinese government, that you are accepting those ads. And if you needed bots to click on ads in order to justify some of this revenue, you are okay with those a larger amount of bots than necessarily you should have been. Right. So there's yeah. a lot of it's about motivations more than it's about, you know, 
a clear picture of gross negligence, which is also something that you see. I think even that guy who said, hey, we've already got one. What's the problem with growing the office? He's a guy who is basically the security guy who's a cost center, shows up and says, I'd like to screw with your ability to get the product out the door by telling you there's a bunch of developers you can't hire. Uh, And he's not giving you solutions. He's just telling you there's something you can't do. And there are no good alternatives. So I can understand why he would have been very impatient. But it suggests that for all those reasons, we just can't rely on Twitter to protect our national security or other interests by itself. And hopefully people knew that. Hopefully people knew that when you have a direct message in Twitter, that the Chinese government's also reading it. Like, I hope that's not like something that confuses this audience, if that makes any sense. Right. So that it's like, it's both like, it's not necessarily all stuff that's going to surprise people. The question is, does it all add up to a level of negligence that's going to get Twitter in hot water in one way or another? And the answer is, I don't think we know yet. Right. So you had a bunch of senators piling onto it. Whether that results in a bill, I would personally would say it's not going to result in significant legislation. Because the issue become, becomes partisan and then grinds to a halt. But, I, you know, we could be wrong. Yeah, I think I saw that Elizabeth Warren was working with, I don't know, Tom Cotton on legislation. So that was a broad enough spectrum that you might get agreement. But we've seen things like that in the antitrust area fail ultimately because people, they find ways to wedge the partisan divide bigger in order to keep legislation from passing. But we will, we'll see. It will be interesting to see what uh, what comes out of that. Okay, the Ethereum merge. We can't ignore it. And after years of being postponed, it actually happened. And, you know, the planet is breathing a sigh of relief. Maury, what exactly was the merge and what did it mean? So the merge was the Ethereum blockchain moving from proof of work as a consensus mechanism to proof of stake as a consensus mechanism. Proof of work has, you know, involves solving mathematical puzzles with computers. Proof of stake involves selecting validators according to how much Ethereum they own. The headlines have been that this reduces the energy consumption of the Ethereum blockchain by an estimated 99.95%, which is good. I think the three most interesting things about it besides that are at least if you listen to Ethereum, it's also more secure. Now, I know Nick may dispute that, but I think there are reasons to believe it's a bit more secure than proof of work. It was an impressive thing to pull off on the fly. This is an operating network, and they substituted in completely different code, and it worked without a hitch. And it's a nice, you know, some people are, I'm kind of neutral on blockchain technology. I think there's a lot of potential for it. I think there's a lot of fraud. But if you believe in blockchain technology, this is the way that it's going to go. The other blockchains that are having an impact like Cardano and Solana and Polkadot all use proof of stake and Coin still does not. But that's going to be an increasing outlier. So, Nick, uh, you've never missed an opportunity to dunk on cryptocurrency. Uh, Is this a good thing? Oh, it's unquestionably a good thing because it removes one of the most pernicious externalities of the system, that is basically being part of Destroy the Earth, Inc. But there's also some other things that are of note and second-order effects that I'll find totally amusing in sources of comedy Godel. So among other things, it doesn't actually increase the security because it's still not meaningfully decentralized, that the network is controlled by a small cartel of validators instead of a small cartel of proof of work. So the validators are the people who put up their stake and say, we will validate these things. And I assume the low bidder gets to validate? No, it's a pseudo-random process. So every tick a random validator is selected and then a random set of validators to vote on it. And if you don't vote, your cryptocurrency goes away. This is a process called slashing. And the thing is, if you stake your Ethereum, you get the block rewards and the gas fees and the like, if you're the selected lottery winner, but you get it as staked Ether, not as Ether. So if you actually want Ether, you actually have to do these tricks called MEV, 
minor extractable value where the miner does things like automatically front run other trades on the decentralized exchanges and stuff like that. And so this not only doesn't affect the MEV phenomenon, it means MEV becomes more significant because it's both a larger share of the revenue and the only way you can actually get Ether rather than staked Ether out. So that's amusing. That and so the the reason this is centralizing is that's there's that's a going to turn out to be a complicated thing that you have to be a pretty big player to to make work for you. No, it's more just you have a Gini coefficient approaching one in the cryptocurrency space, and so it's the whales that have the biggest vote. It's literally enshrined: he who has the gold makes the rules. And this will be very interesting when. Or if OFAC, say, wakes up and realizes miners are money transmitters, validators are money transmitters, this amount of centralization actually makes the regulation easier because the number two validator is Coinbase. Yeah. So validators, regulating validators is going to be easier than regulating miners, probably. Right. Because there's no more validators, there's actually fewer, and you get the whales and you get the system. But this is just like I think some like people might disagree. This is just like 1.0, internet 1.0 where at some point things tipped over into the really big players thinking I can live with regulation and my competitors can't. Let's go for it. Uh, no. There's a lot of centralization, but I think people would I uh, centralization is a problem. But I think people might dispute that it's actually become worse with proof of stake. It's easier to monitor Who's, who's voting with proof of stake? Um, no, and it isn't because proof of stake for Ether is in 32 Ether units. And so you have to do a lot of heuristics to actually understand how big the big validator. What does this mean for Bitcoin? I, I, my sense is that Bitcoin now, since you still have to use all this power and nobody likes you, I, is probably... It's not clear there's going to be a lot more Bitcoin mining in the world just since people can generate Ethereum much less with much less overhead. No. Instead, what it's going to be is going to make it easier for the regulators, that the regulators will be able to say, hey, it's not right that you're spending 2.5 cents a kilowatt hour to mine Bitcoin in Texas and then get credit for turning off when the power grid is just about to collapse. It's going to be easier to make sure that future deals like that don't happen. Yeah, they'll, be, they'll, they'll become a less, you know, they'll, they'll become a, a brown industry that people are unenthusiastic about. And that raises costs. And I thought that actually Bitcoin mining costs were pretty high. And that adds to Bitcoin transaction costs, which Ethereum now has- No, it doesn't affect the transaction costs. That the costs of- Doesn't that affect gas fees? How do you, no. how do you, how do you pay for what the, uh, the miners are doing? The gas fees are unchanged. And so the Ethereum in terms of cost for users is the same post-merge as pre-merge. Okay. I think in the short run, this is probably going to drop Bitcoin mining costs because the two big components of mining costs are energy and, um, and GPUs. And, and the GPUs and the, and the are hard, getting a lot cheaper. Uh, no, the, <laughs> and there's a lot. Bitcoin of- mining uses different equipment. Bitcoin mining uses ASICs that are specifically doing SHA 256. It is, however, cratering NVIDIA because that was where they were selling most of their stuff. Boy, it's a good thing that everybody got $50 billion out of the U.S. Congress to build more chip fabs just before the uh, the chip market fell apart. Okay, let's go back to European regulatory enthusiasm. Uh, Maury, again, I, I hate to say it, but I found myself thinking, yeah, maybe this not, isn't a bad idea, at least about part of what the EU is proposing to do on IoT, Internet of Things security. Uh, what is it they're going to do? They're not going to do it soon. It's going to take a while in the usual EUA, but what did they propose to do? Yeah, this will take years. It was just introduced. It's called the Cyber Resilience Act, which would be a new EU regulation to regulate cyber aspects of products with digital elements. And it seems like products with digital elements can mean practically anything. It can mean a computer, it can mean a mobile phone, it can mean an IoT device. And basically, it would say if these things have cyber flaws in them, you can't put them on the market. 
And if they are have holes that are discovered within, I think the proposal was five years after they're put on the market, then you got to fix it. And the devil's going to be in the details in the EU, as I sometimes believe, and you often believe, Stuart, tends to be over-regulatory. But the thrust of this, you know, Bruce Schneier, who's one of my heroes and is sometimes on this podcast, has been saying for a decade or more that the incentives aren't there to do cybersecurity right, and it's going to have to be regulated in the long run. The EU is being a bit of a leader on this. They have, to some extent, already with the NIS directive for some sectors. And I think, depending upon how this is done, it could be for the good. Yeah, it's going to really, really raise the cost of stuff that we don't even think about, that is pocket change today. A $10 internet-enabled gizmos, they're, they're going to disappear because the kinds of regulatory requirements here demand a fair amount of quality control and a lot of pretty high-priced talent to come up with your software bill of materials, to have an incident reporting framework, to keep changing your security standards every time the EU says we think something else is appropriate now. So it's going to be expensive, but you know, cheap products uh, like this have turned out to be pretty expensive in terms of DDoS attacks and ability to compromise bigger networks. Yeah, it reminds me a bit of the REACH regulation, which is the EU chemical regulation, which said you have to do a bunch of stuff before you put chemicals on the market to make sure they're not dangerous. And some would say it's over-regulatory. It's been good for lawyers like our firm, but you know, overall it promotes safety and the European chemicals industry keeps going along. People are going to keep buying these products in Europe and I think it will become a cost, but hopefully if it goes in the right way, it will become a cost that does protect people. Well, and to return to a theme I've already sounded, as soon as the big players can afford this, they will start saying, hey, that's fine. That's a good idea. Put out, our, put all our cheap competitors out of business and there'll only be five of us and we'll all be able to afford to do the things that the regulatory requirements demand because we're charging three times as much for these little gizmos. Yep. Okay. Well, here's a story that keeps coming back. Did you know that DHS actually copies people's phones when they cross the border? Dave, why are we hearing this story again? <laughs> I think we're hearing the story because for the first time, we have a little bit of detail on the scope of the copying in terms of how many people are getting caught by this. Now, obviously, it, as much as it seems to make some sense that the DHS or that Border Control, realistically, is capturing people's phones and the way it justifies it is, of course, that these are all people that it's tagged as part of major investigations. The reality is, is that Americans find it quite unsettling that without a warrant, they can essentially look at such personal data. Right. And it's it's not great. I'll be honest. It's unsettling. I get it. Right? Like so they have yeah. extremely broad latitude to copy the data on your phone as you pass through the border, which is defined as, you know, a hundred miles next to any international port. Right. So it, it's one of those things where like more and more we see that like the law is a little bit out of kilter with people's expectations when it comes to their cell phones. And you saw this obviously with the Supreme Court, you know, saying that, hey, this is a little bit different from a purse, right? It's got your whole life in it. So I get that, right? And the details you have when it comes to, you know, it's 10,000 people, there's, or they, they're getting caught by this every year. There's 3,000 officials within border control that can look at all this data if they want and can search it. This is the kind of area where you would hope the government would start putting very transparent regulatory processes in place. And you'll note that even the intelligence community has fairly transparent processes for how long it's going to keep data and it's going to delete what it doesn't need and all of these other things. You don't have that here yet. And it's one so of those to things- To some degree you do. They did come up with a system of two layers of search uh, right. They did. They did the kind of browse search, and only if they find something do they get the deep search. And I think something like for every sixty thousand people who cross the border, one of them has their phone copied. So it's not as though they're doing this in. I don't vast believe numbers. they're doing it willy nilly, but I do believe that this is an area that could be improved. And I think one of the weird things about this is I think. For the border control team, 
to them, it's cost-free. I don't think they understand that like, when you take a European's phone from them and say, we're going to look at all your data, you've made an enemy for life. <laughs> right, like, like I don't believe they understand the cost that comes in reputation and other things. Like, if China was doing this to every American that walked through the door, we would be screaming bloody murder. And the reality is, this is a, this sort of there's a concept called technical debt that like you pay off in companies, and this is sort right. of like goodwill debt that you're paying, you just don't know it yet, yeah. right? So. I think we need to do something here. I know that obviously DHS is going to say we're following all the regulations we have to and the you know people have said we can do what we want. That's true. But just because they said you can do it does not mean it's a great idea. So that's kind yeah. of what the story is. This story is just another drop in the bucket for them, but it's going to add up eventually and we'll start seeing something. The other thing is a lot of these searches, at least some of them, are not initiated by border patrol they're basically requested by other law enforcement yeah the fbi um, has is the fbi loves dhs's authorities at the border yes. and uh, they will say put this guy in secondary so we can interview him they will say can you get us a copy of his his phone yes that they rely on the data on departing passengers to say, hey, this guy, we've been worried this guy is going to flee the jurisdiction. And what do you know? He's leaving for Venezuela this afternoon. Let's go out and stop him. Yeah. Didn't do very much good at uh, stopping Fat Leonard, though. Um, yeah. Well, but, no, Fat Leonard was pretty close to the war. <laughs> yeah. But one of the big cases that this seems to show up a lot in is CSAMA cases. This is a really common tool for that. The question I have is that has surprised me is that this hasn't really been litigated yet because of how all the encryptions and protections are on the phone. So I'm really surprised we haven't had a case yet where somebody just said, no, the phone's locked, keep it. I'm going to call the ACLU and we'll litigate it later. So I I'm willing to bet that of those of the people crossing the border, so let's say it's a, probably more than half, maybe three quarters, are non-U.S. citizens who are coming into the United States. And if they say that, yeah, they DHS simply says, you know, if that's fine, yeah. here's your phone back, sir, and you just stay here until the next flight back yeah, home. But there's still a large enough number of U.S. persons that I'm surprised this hasn't been litigated. Yeah, I thought it had been. I thought there'd been First Circuit and Ninth Circuit decisions on this, and in the end, they had upheld it with some tweaks. But I may be wrong about that. I think you're right. And I think what we're seeing here is not – like I think they put a number of 10,000 people in the article, and I think that is Americans. And that could be. Actually, no, I think the article was 10,000 devices. And maybe each person has three devices. So yeah. look, the numbers are a little fuzzy, but they shouldn't be fuzzy. These should be public numbers. So that's something that I think is definitely, you know, like it's one of those policy decisions that we're leaning really heavily on that definitely has some wiggle room for us to kind of make better choices, if that makes any so sense. So I will only say, here's the problem that CBP faces at the border. They have millions of people every day who have to be admitted or rejected, and they have to make those decisions on the basis of 30 seconds of interpersonal contact and whatever data they can get. That data, that's why they very much want to know who's coming in advance and want passenger name record data. And that's why if they get suspicious about somebody, they need a quick way to validate or uh, overturn those suspicions. This is not a situation where you can, you know, where you're doing it one arrest at a time and you can arrest somebody or stand there on the street and inquire because the queue is relentless. It's getting longer all the time and they can't afford to let the queue get longer. That's why they need the data to make these decisions. And that's why they have been so resistant about losing access to data that might help them make those decisions better. I agree with you. I mean, obviously in the case of Americans, they're going to let them in. Yes. Like that's definitely going to happen. And what you could see a world where they say, 
when we take an American's phone, we keep that data for three days. And right. then we securely delete it. And this is, you know, it comes down to like, you don't need this data floating around. It's a security risk to have it floating around. Like protecting data is really hard. Uber's data is important. Twitter's data is important. And this data is important. If you're holding on to it, you're holding like a little nuclear football. It's right. best to delete it if you can at all. I think these, we could make better policies. We just haven't chosen to yet. All right. So it turns out and this is another shocker. Did you know that the National Security Agency is actually hacking Chinese universities to, to find out the military secrets? China has released a report saying they do it to us. And so all those attributions that show that we've been doing it, it's just everybody doing it to everybody. Maury, I, it was an okay report, I guess. I'm not sure it was up to the standards that uh, attribution by forensics teams in the U.S. are. And I don't know that it really is going to make much of a difference in world opinion. Maybe it'll make a difference in Chinese public opinion. Well, I think you started with the right shock horror um, <laughs> reaction. I mean, you know, we I think we all know that everybody's doing this. I, we think the Chinese are probably doing more of it than us, but who knows? Maybe that's just good, good propaganda by the United States. So, you know, however good the attribution report is, I think it's likely to be true. And none of us should be too surprised. I thought it was just kind of fun to that it was what goes around comes around, I guess. So, David, was there a surprise? Anything that, sur that surprised you in that? I, I want to point out that Chinese incident response not being quite at the level of a CrowdStrike or a Mandiant is good for our operational security, but it's bad for stability, if it makes sense. For international relations stability, when you want to be able to trust that they know what's going on enough that they're not misinterpreting things, they're not over-escalating things, and their you know, political teams are being well-informed. And I don't think we're quite at that level yet based on what we're seeing from these sorts of documents. Now, there's things in the report that I don't think got a lot of attention. They specifically named Rob Joyce, obviously, and, and, and sort of tried to make a big deal about that. And I felt like that was something coming culturally out of a very weird place where they felt like they were naming and shaming, even though he's very public about his position and right. has been for years. So that was a very weird aspect of it. And for people listening to this podcast who don't know, Rob Joyce obviously runs TAO, which is the cyber division at the NSA, right? Or had at the time. But they also named that they knew there were 13 other individuals involved in this operation. They did not name those individuals, which is normal. It's, it's customary unless you're filing an indictment not to name necessarily individuals uh, as part of these reports. But that was a very weird – it was interesting that they named that they knew of a number. right? That implied right. that they had much better visibility – into it than we think they actually do. And they listed a bunch of tools and a bunch of nonsense statistics as part of this report. And they, you know, argued that they are there for the, you know, we're getting hacked as much as we are hacking. It's, you know, a teapot and kettle situation. I don't think that's necessarily true. I don't think it, it was portrayed very well. It certainly was not communicated to a Western audience very well. And I think it's important to track as they get better at incident response, do these reports become more professional? And even the APT-1 report was very professional. It was yeah. extremely well-polished. So I think that's there's a lot here to look at. I think it's, an, it's like, as Maury says, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. And, you know, we expect them to get better over time. Okay. All right. We got, we're running out of time. I'm going to just run through some stories and ask you to give us one sentence. Uh, Dave, the Atlantic Council did a study trying to figure out whether the Chinese government rules on reporting vulnerabilities to them first were cutting off reports of vulnerabilities to more established Western forums. And they seem to say, yeah, looks like that's what's happening. You agree? Maybe. That's yeah. Honestly, this is hard data to look at. They did their best. There's a lot of factors that are impossible to account for. I know you said one sentence. I'm going too long. But like, okay. the reality is like the answer is maybe. Yep. All right. And how about um, we finally have our first cyber ambassador? I think that sounds like actually everybody by now is of the view that that's a good idea since we invented the idea. I, I think Nate Fick, who's the new yep. cyber ambassador, and I think people know him largely from Generation Kill, but he's had a storied 
career in information security as well. He was uh, CEO of Endgame, which then got yeah. purchased by Elastic, obviously. So a great guy, actually keynoted a conference I ran not too long ago, a uh, really good thinker, and I think has his work cut out for him. Let's put it that way. There's my sentence. Okay. I want to mention this story. Just people are starting to analyze what's happening in the ad tech market, which is really in a turmoil as Facebook in particular, but also Google are being challenged by others. Uh, and I think maybe three months ago, I said, you know, Apple cut off with its privacy policy. A lot of data flows to Facebook and to Google and it turns out they're doing that in part because it makes them a much more effective seller of ad business. And some people poo-pooed that, but actually Apple is coming on strong in the ad tech business along with Amazon and of course, TikTok. Uh, uh, so lots of change, but hypocrisy award to Apple, which I always like uh, awarding when I have the chance for telling us it was doing it to preserve our privacy when they were really about preserving their access to a really big pot of money. Tornado cash, third week in a row we've had to talk about that. Treasury, now that they've been sued, has released some guidance. Nick, I would say the guidance says Treasury's not really backing down. They're clarifying the dumbest possible interpretations of their guidance, but they, they're not giving much comfort to people who had hoped that they would get more comfort after the lawsuit. Yeah, that basically this is telling the lawsuit to go pound sand that nobody has standing anymore because the lawsuit had six people, three who only wanted to interact with the big tornado cash pools because in theory they wanted privacy and three who had small amounts of money locked up, just a few thousand bucks. And now Treasury will say, these three, no standing. These three, no standing because they don't bother filling out the form. Yeah, and the and the guidance that they issued said, yeah, you can read the code, you can write you can write code, but if you're putting money in and out of Tornado Cash systems, that's a transaction, and you're going to need a license. And also, you can fork the code and run your own Tornado Cash copy, but note if it gets used by the DPRK, the same thing will happen again. Right. Okay. And then finally, Indian cyber law, there was an interesting story about an effort to get a bunch of Indians, and it turned out 50 million in the end, to geotag their homes publicly. Uh, Maury, I ended up thinking this story might have been motivated in part by hostility to the Mahdi government, but maybe I'm wrong about that. Well, the BJP convinced 50 million people to geotag photos of themselves at home. You know, we talk about surveillance capitalism, getting together marketing and government surveillance. The BJP just figured out how to do the whole thing within the government. It, it, it's only a matter of time between be, before the Trump organization and the Democratic National Committee ask us to do the same thing. Exactly. So the, the yeah. point of this was to get information about people who are uh, their supporters Presumably, so they can ask them for money and other kinds of support. Something like that. Yeah, I, yeah, I did not think there was much more than that in it. And then finally, uh, I had an article which people can read. I posted it on the Volat Conspiracy, responding to this claim that Facebook was in cahoots with the FBI to identify conservatives for investigation and was volunteering the information. And I ended up saying. I don't think they're volunteering the information just uh, on a whim. That's not legal, and they are unlikely to vi violate the law, and the FBI is unlikely to ask them to do it. But if I had, if I were asked to come up with a mechanism for doing this, it wouldn't be hard. I would just go through all of the private messages on Facebook and look for anything that sounded like a threat of violence or could be tied to a threat of violence because of the uh, January 6th uh, events or some other violent event that happened after the words were spoken. And then I'd say, we think this creates a threat of to life or limb. And there is an exception for emergencies in which you volunteer information because you've found something that is a threat to life and limb. And if you did that on an industrial scale, as long as you were careful about whether you were really in an emergency and whether this was really a threat to life or limb, you could pull it off. Uh, that's my guess. If this story is true, and I actually am inclined to believe that the, the FBI leaks are accurate to a degree, 
that's probably how it's happening. And then there's a question of just how careful was Silicon Valley in saying this is an emergency, this is really a threat to life and limb, or were they just picking on people who were using uh, slogans that they thought belonged to the other side of the debate and uh, turning them in because they're all insurrectionists anyway? We'll see. I'm hoping that there actually will be some close look at this and that we'll learn more because if it's really reporting threats, it's a good thing. And if it's part of a political effort, then it's a really bad thing. And we'll just find out. Okay. Dave, Maury, Nick, thank you for joining us to the audience. Send us your questions, cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Give us a rating, leave us a review. We'll read the review if we like it, or even if we hate it. I, and I want to thank Weissman Sound Design for our music. This has been episode 422 of the Cyberlaw Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson.